Beloved congregation in our Lord Jesus Christ, this morning in our consideration of the first petition of the Lord's Prayer, we're going to consider Psalm 145. And Psalm 145 is a psalm, a prayer and a praise, as it's called, of David, in which we do what we ask God to do in the first petition. We pray in that first petition, hallowed be your name. And in this prayer and praise of David, Psalm 145, we hallow his name. The Catechism says that that petition, hallowed be your name, means that we ask God to sanctify, that we, uh, he grant us to sanctify, magnify, and praise him in all his works, in which his power, goodness, justice, mercy, and truth shine forth. And we have here in Psalm 145 an example of exactly that. The people of God, we ourselves, uh, sanctifying, magnifying, and praising him in all his works. Now there are a number of things that we want to say about the psalm before we begin the explanation of the psalm. Uh, And the first of the things that we want to say is that it is an alphabetic psalm. That's one of the things you'll see on the sheet that I handed out. It's an alphabetic psalm, but there are only 21 verses rather than 22. There are 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet, and this has only 21 verses. The letter Nun is missing, and that letter would follow immediately after verse 13, the letter Mem. So there's one uh, small variation from the ordinary alphabetic pattern of these alphabetic psalms. The second thing that we want to notice from this sheet is that the psalm is arranged as a chiasm, which means that verses 1 and 2 of the psalm correspond to verse 21. And you can see if you compare those verses that they're very similar. I will extol you, my God, O King, my mouth shall speak the praise of the Lord. Then uh, verses 3 to 9 correspond to verses 14 to 20. There are seven verses in each of those sections, 14 lines, and the focus in these uh, two sections of the psalm is on um, the uh, reasons for the praise of the Lord. And we'll get to all the details of that in our explanation of the psalm. And then you have a central section, verses 10 to 13. And those four verses in the center of the psalm are especially focused on praising the Lord for his kingdom. Notice the word kingdom appears four times in verses 11, 12, and 13. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom to make known to the sons of men his mighty acts and the glorious majesty of his kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. And since that is the heart of the psalm, the center of the psalm, that's also the central idea of the psalm. The psalm uh, is a psalm of praise to God, but it's a psalm of praise to God for his royal power as revealed in his kingdom and in his works in his kingdom. And it's therefore a psalm of praise to God for his 
rule in our Lord Jesus Christ, the King whom he has exalted to sit at his right hand. And we have to see the rest of the psalm then in the light of those verses in the center of the psalm. That throughout this psalm, the uh, praise of David is for God exercising his royal power within his kingdom. Now, two other things before we uh, go to the details of the psalm. First of all, notice that in the first part of the psalm, especially in verses 1 to 7, there's an alternating between I and they, I and they. So he begins on the personal note, I will extol you, my God and King. But if you go to verse 4, he changes to the third person. One generation shall praise your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. And back to the first person in verse 5, I will meditate on the glorious splendor of your majesty. And to the third person in verse 6, men shall speak of the might of your awesome acts, and I will declare your greatness. And again in verse 7, they shall utter the memory of your great goodness. So there's this alternating back and forth. This is a psalm that's very personal in its praise, first of all. It's one child of God singing the praises of his God and King. But he expects, as he sings the praises of his God and King, he expects many others to join him in that praise. So that's one additional feature that we need to notice. There's this alternating back and forth, which is, first of all, very personal and then very inclusive. The second thing that we want to notice then in this kind of uh, context is the emphasis in the last part of the psalm, especially on the word all or every. And you find that word in almost every verse from verse 13 on. And you find it used in various ways, all ages, every generation, all who fall, all who are bowed down, Every living thing, all your ways, all your works, all who call upon him, all those who love him, all the wicked, all flesh. It goes on and on and on. There's this, all the works of God, all those works of God praising him, and all those works of God praising him to all generations. That all is unmistakable is one of the Themes of the Psalms, of the Psalm. Now, as I said, this is a Psalm of praise, and it's a Psalm of praise to God for his royal exercise of his kingly majesty and power in his kingdom. And we're going to consider the Psalm under the theme Praise to the Lord for the splendor of the glory of his majesty. Praise to the Lord for the splendor of the glory of his majesty. And we take that from verse 5. The translation of the Hebrew there is just a little bit, what I would call a little bit weak. We have in the New King James, I will meditate on the glorious splendor of your majesty. The better way to translate is, I will meditate on the splendor of the glory of of your majesty. So praise to the Lord for the splendor of the glory of his majesty. 
And as we consider the psalm, we're going to begin with the central thought of the psalm, that is, with verses 10 to 13. And then we're going to, uh, and we're going to consider that under the heading, uh, Praise to the Lord for His Kingdom. Then we're going to take the two sections on either side of that, verses 4 to 9 and verses 14 to 20, under the theme, Praise to the Lord for His Goodness. That's the particular emphasis of that part, those two parts of the psalm. And then we're going to consider, in the third place, praise to the name of the Lord, verses 1 and 2 and 21. So let's begin then by looking at that central portion of the psalm, verses 10 to 13, where the main idea of the psalm is expressed for us. Praise to the Lord for his kingdom. We've already noticed that that word kingdom appears in here three times, or four times rather. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and talk of your power to make known to the sons of men his mighty acts and the glorious majesty of his kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and your dominion endures throughout all generations. Now, we have to think about that kingdom of the Lord, first of all, of course, in the context in which David wrote this psalm. David was the anointed of the Lord, the king of Israel, and when he speaks of the kingdom of the Lord here in Psalm 145, he's talking about the kingdom of Israel, that kingdom which was specifically and very especially the kingdom of the Lord in Old Testament times. That's the kingdom he's talking about. And his whole emphasis in these verses is on the glory of that kingdom. David was not the one by whom the kingdom was founded. The first king was Saul, of course, but it was under David that 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 kingdom of the Lord reached the heights of the glory which God had promised to it before this. It was under David that the enemies of Israel, who were all around Israel on every side, were conquered. David fought against Moab and Edom and Syria and the Philistines and many other of the enemies of the nation of Israel. And he conquered them and he made them pay tribute and he subjected them to his own kingdom, to the kingdom of Israel. He talks about this in Psalm 18 towards the end of that psalm. Psalm 18, verse 43. You have delivered me, he says, from the strivings of the people. You have made me the head of the nations. A people I have not known shall serve me. As soon as they hear of me, they obey me. The foreigners submit to me. The foreigners fade away and come frightened from their hideouts. So the Lord had subjected to David the nations around. And he had made the kingdom of Israel the most powerful and glorious kingdom in that part of the world at that time. He had extended that kingdom of David to the Euphrates River in the north and to the boundaries of the land of Egypt in the south, to the full extent promised in the book of Deuteronomy. He had given to that kingdom great wealth by plundering his enemies and by taking over their lands and by making them pay tribute, David had made that kingdom of the Lord exceedingly rich. That was part of the glory of that kingdom. 
David had conquered the stronghold of Zion and made Zion and Jerusalem the capital city, and he had established the throne of God there in that capital city of Zion. That was the heart of the glory of the kingdom, that the throne of God was there. It was the city of God. And of course, that glory then, which that kingdom had achieved under David, was manifested most visibly under his son Solomon, who began to use the wealth that David had accumulated to build himself a palace and a very glorious throne and to set up his servants and his household in a very glorious way and to uh, show himself as a very powerful and glorious king to the nations but who had also built the temple of God there, the throne of God and the house of God in that city for the manifestation of the glory of God to the nations. And it's this that we have to see, of course, when we talk about the kingdom, about the Queen of Sheba coming to Solomon, that the Queen of Sheba is coming to admire the king and the kingdom of the Lord. That's the glory in the first place that David is talking about here. The glorious majesty of the kingdom of God. But of course, David is very well aware that his kingdom is only a typical kingdom and that really this kingdom is a heavenly kingdom and that there is a greater king than he or than his son Solomon coming yet. And that in that son, that kingdom will be much more glorious even than it was under Solomon. This is the kingdom then. It's a celebration of the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is seated now at the right hand of God. And we see a little bit of a reflection of that glory of the kingdom of Christ in Revelation 4, the chapter that we read, and in the song that the... um, uh, angels sing there, or that the, the uh, beasts sing there before the throne. He saw the throne, and he who sat there was like a jasper and a sardius stone in appearance, and there was a rainbow around the throne in appearance like an emerald. And then you have the 24 thrones with the 24 elders, and you have the uh, four living creatures, and you have the song, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And you have the 24 elders also crying, You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. That's the kingdom that's celebrated here. Now notice that there is, first of all, an emphasis on the glory of the kingdom. Verse 11, They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom. And verse 12, the glorious majesty or the majesty of the glory of your kingdom. So it's the glory of the kingdom. It's the power of the king as well that you read about. They shall talk of your power to make known to the sons of men his mighty acts. And and there's an emphasis also on the perpetual enduring character of that kingdom Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and your dominion endures throughout all generations. 
Another characteristic of this psalm, by the way, is that there is in it a lot of what you would call superlative language. And you see one example of that there in verse 13. There's a phrase that's used very commonly in the psalms, which is usually not translated precisely. It's the phrase generation and generation, to generation and generation. We might say to generation after generation. And the idea, of course, is the perpetual character of the kingdom. It's the phrase you find at the end of verse 13, where you just read all generations. It's to generation and generation. But here you have a very striking little change to that phrase. And that is that David adds to that phrase here the adjective all or every. And your dominion to every generation and generation. He's not satisfied to say that this is just a kingdom that lasts generation after generation. He has to emphasize it. And he, he does this in other places too, as we'll see in a moment. But he has to emphasize it to every generation and generation. And in this kingdom then, all his works praise him. All your works shall praise you, O Lord. And that means all his works, without exception, He's not just talking about angels and men in that kingdom. He's talking about all the creatures, animate and inanimate, in that kingdom. All your works shall praise you, O Lord. And then also, your saints shall bless you. And of course, he singles out the saints as ones who especially bless him because they are the ones who are the special citizens of that kingdom and who enjoy especially the blessings of that kingdom. And these creatures then, in their uh, declaring the praises of their king, speak of that kingship and of that kingdom to the sons of man, verse 12, to make known to the sons of men his mighty acts and the majesty of the glory of his kingdom. You see the superlative again, right? He's not satisfied to say the majesty of his kingdom or the glory of his kingdom. It has to be the majesty of the glory of his kingdom. So he's celebrating the glory of the kingdom of God. Almost you could say, people of God, that this psalm would be as suitable as a consideration of the second petition as it is of the first petition. Now let's look on either side of that central section at verses 4 to 9 and verses 14 to 20. Or verses 3 to 9, I'm sorry. Verses 3 to 9 and 14 to 20. Now, verses 3 to 9, first of all. And I think the way to see what David's getting at in these verses and what we are doing in these verses as we use this psalm and this prayer is that verse 3 kind of captures the main idea of verses 3 to 9 
And then verses 4 to 9 explain this in some detail. First in regard to his works, verses 4 to 6. And then in regard to his attributes, verses 7 to 9. So we take verse 3 by itself, and then we take verses 4 to 6 together, and then verses 7 to 9 together. Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. When you don't know how to express something adequately, one way to try to uh, impress upon people uh, the uh, significance of what you're saying is to understate it. That is, not to pile up word upon word upon word in order to try to say enough that people get an impression of what you're thinking and and the significance of what you're saying from the multitude of your words, but to use just a few words and to use a few words that far understate what you're trying to say. And that's what we have here. Great is the Lord doesn't tell us how great he is, doesn't even attempt to tell us how great he is. It doesn't tell us in what ways he is great. It simply says, great is the Lord. And he is great. He is so great, in fact, that language cannot express his greatness. You may pile up words to the fullest extent of your power and never reach the depths or the heights of the greatness of the Lord. You may study that greatness of the Lord all your lifetime and at the end of your lifetime you will still only be able to say I have just scratched the surface of understanding the greatness of this Lord. He is great. He is unimaginably great. His greatness is unsearchable. You cannot plumb its depths. You cannot reach its heights. There is no greatness in all the creation to be compared to the greatness of the Lord. There are many great things in the creation. Perhaps the greatest of them all is the universe itself in its enormous vastness. And yet the Lord is much much greater even than it. He is great. And because he is great, he is greatly to be praised. This is what we're talking about in the first petition when we say, hallowed be your name. May your name be praised in all your works. Then in verses 4 to 6, you see an emphasis on his works. Notice how those works are described here in in every one of those three verses. Your works, verse 4, your mighty acts also. Then in verse 5, your wondrous works or your wonders. And in verse 6, your awesome or your fearful acts. So you have this emphasis on the works of the Lord. We see his works And it's from his works that we know his greatness and we praise him in praising his works. So he says, both one generation shall praise your works to another. That is, generation after generation shall be praising the works of the Lord. 
and generation after generation will be declaring his mighty acts. But he also introduces again that personal element here. I will meditate on the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works. And back to verse 6, back to the third person in verse 6. Men shall speak of the might of your awesome acts, and I will declare your greatness. They shall utter the memory of your great goodness, and so on. So you get this alternating again. I and they, we will both be declaring the mighty works of the Lord. But again, notice that the superlative language that he's using here. He just can't seem to say enough. He talks in verse 5 about the glorious splendor of your majesty, or as we've already said, the splendor of the glory of your majesty. Those three words, splendor, glory, majesty, are really synonyms, aren't they? There's not a, a huge difference in meaning between those two words, maybe some slight differences of connotation, but they're basically the same idea. But David can't just satisfy his sense of the greatness and glory of God by using one he has to use all three the glory of the splendor of your majesty he is great and greatly to be praised and men and he then will declare those works those mighty works of the Lord in verses 7 to 9 you have an emphasis not on the works of the Lord, but on his attributes, and particularly his goodness. They shall utter the memory of your great goodness and shall sing of your righteousness. Notice all the words that revolve around this idea of the goodness of the Lord. In fact, I think we may say that every word he uses here it revolves around that idea of the goodness of the Lord. You have, first of all, the word goodness itself. It means beneficence. The Lord is good. And that means he's a God who gives good things to his creatures and who delights in giving good things. He's not a God who delights in doing harm. He's not a God who delights in doing evil. He's not a God who delights in injury. He's a God who delights in goodness, in opening his hand and giving good things to his creatures. His goodness is great. Righteousness, even in this context, I think, revolves around this idea of the goodness of the Lord. Righteousness here is that attribute of God by which he establishes a righteous kingdom. And we have, I think, come so far from the idea of kingship and from righteousness in the idea of the existence of a nation that we almost don't understand the relationship between them. But the main task of a king, or at least one of the main tasks of a king, is to establish righteousness and to defend righteousness in his kingdom. And he has to establish and defend righteousness in his kingdom because that's the only way his people can have strength and peace and prosperity and joy. It's in a righteous kingdom that there is peace and prosperity and joy and the enjoyment of every blessing. 
Righteousness has to be the foundation even of earthly kingdoms. And when earthly kingdoms depart from ways of righteousness, earthly kingdoms over periods of time, sometimes long periods of time, decline and finally fall and become very weak or even non-existent. But the Lord establishes a kingdom in righteousness, in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And it's a perfect righteousness, and it's a righteousness which is prevailing and going to prevail completely in the long run. That's one of the blessings of his goodness to us then. That he gives to us righteousness in his kingdom. It's a fearful thing to those who are disobedient, who hate the law and who hate the king. But it's a blessing to those who love him and seek him. Then you have in verse 8, the grace of the Lord, the gifts that he gives, his compassion for the miserable, his slowness to anger. He's not a God who pounces immediately on any transgression of his law in order to punish it to the full extent of the law as quickly as possible, but who gives to his creatures uh, chastisements, who shows mercy to them in order to give them opportunity to return to him and his ways. He's great in mercy or great in loving kindness. He's good to all. His tender mercies are over all his works. Now again, I think there's something very striking about this, this emphasis on the goodness of the Lord. When we think of kingdoms in the past, and when we read histories of kingdoms in the past, what's the main emphasis often? On the wars fought, on the victories of the king, on the great generals and the great warriors of those kingdoms. This is not particularly, this psalm is not particularly a celebration of the victories of the Lord over his enemies. This psalm is a celebration rather of the goodness, the kindliness, the grace, the compassion, the favor, the love, the beneficence of the king. The king seeking to fulfill his royal responsibilities towards all the creatures that belong to his kingdom so that they may have a life of peace and prosperity and joy. Let's turn then to verses 14 to 20. And here we get also the emphasis on the goodness of the Lord. But it's of a different sort of thing here. And again, I think it's helpful, it will be helpful to us if we see some structure to this. We have here, I think, almost again a little bit of a chiasm in these verses within the larger chiasm of the psalm. So that we have three verses, 14 to 16, to begin. And then a central verse, which expresses the main idea of the section. The Lord is righteous in all his ways, gracious in all his works, verse 17. And then more description or explanation of that central idea in verses 18 to 20. So we're going to begin with verse 17. 
The Lord is righteous in all his ways, gracious in all his works. And this goes back to these, these words, righteous and gracious, goes back to words found in verses 7 and 8 of the prior section. So he's still talking about the same attributes of the Lord, the righteousness and grace of the Lord. Those are the two things that he wants us to focus on. The Lord is righteous in all his ways, gracious in all his works. And how does he show this righteousness and grace? Well, that's first in verses 14 to 16, where he's dealing really with all the creatures of his kingdom. Every man, woman, and child, every animal, every inanimate thing in all the universe belongs to this kingdom of God. And of that kingdom, it said, then, the Lord upholds all who fall and raises up all who are bowed down. So that's the first thing. That's one way he manifests his righteousness and his uh, uh, his grace. Now, there are many ways you could think of that falling. You could, for example, look at Leviticus 26, verse 7. Leviticus 26, verse 7. You will chase your enemies and they shall fall by the sword before you. That's one way of falling. Falling by the sword. Or you have uh, Samson in Judges chapter 15 being afraid and praying to God because he thinks after killing the 1,000 Philistines with the jawbone that he might fall into the hands of his enemies. He's afraid of being captured by them and being tormented by them as he indeed was later in life. Or you find in Psalm 7 verse 15 that the psalmist there speaks of falling into a snare, falling into a trap. So you can... Think of this falling in different ways, falling by the sword, falling into the hands of enemies, falling into a snare. Um, in Judges, there's also the story of the concubine of the Levite who was abused all night by the men of Gibeah and who then came and fell down at the door of the house through the weakness that had come upon her because of the horrible abuse she had suffered. That's the kind of falling down that the scriptures are talking about here. The Lord upholds those who fall. That's first. He upholds those who fall. And he raises up all who are bowed down. And you may take this in the sense that Isaiah 58, for example, uses it when it talks about a man bowing his head for grief. As he fasts, that's one way. You, you grieve over something and you bow your head. But there's an, a very uh, interesting illustration of this uh, being bowed down in the miracles of our Lord Jesus Christ. As recorded in Luke 13, verses 11 and following. Behold, there was a woman who had a spirit of infirmity 18 years and was bent over and, in, and could in no way raise herself up. But when Jesus saw her, he called her to him and said to her, Woman, you are loosed from your infirmity. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight and glorified God. That's an example of what the king does for his, uh, the citizens of his kingdom. He raises up all who are bowed down. 
But of course you can take these phrases also, and we should, in, in a spiritual way. To fall, maybe to fall into temptation and the snare of the devil. To be bowed down, maybe to be bowed down with the weight of our sins and the weight of our troubles here in this world. And the Lord upholds and lifts up those who thus fall and are bowed down. In the second place, in that part, verses 15 and 16, we find him providing for the needs of all his creatures, the animals as well as the people. The eyes of all look expectantly to you, and you give them their food in due season. You open your hand and satisfy the desire of every living thing. Here's the king opening his storehouses to provide from his storehouses for all the creatures of his kingdom, so that all may eat and be satisfied. Not one will need to lack. So that's, that's verses 14 to 16, but now if you go to verses 18 to 20, the focus changes, or perhaps we might say the focus becomes a little more narrow. Because here in verses 18 to 20, the focus is not on all who fall, and those who bow down, and the eyes of all looking to him, but is on his saints. The Lord is near to all who call upon him. These are the ones who call upon him. He will fulfill the desire of those who fear him. They are those who fear him. The Lord preserves all who love him. Notice in each one of those verses, something about those who belong to God, those who are his special people, And this is then the celebration of his goodness to his own special people among all those creatures that belong to his kingdom. So that's first. The second thing you want to notice about those three verses, 18 to 20, is that there's progression in them. He begins with the idea of calling on him. And to call on the Lord is to use his name, to ask him to hear. And what does he say about the Lord with regard to those who call upon him in truth, of course, that is in sincerity and according as he has instructed them. He is near them. That is, he's not so far removed from them that his ears cannot hear their cries, that their cries cannot reach him. Their cries ascend to him in his holy temple and they come before him and he is near enough to them to hear. In the second place then, those who, are, who call him in that way express to him their desires, the desire of those who fear him. And their desires, of course, are governed by their fear of him. Their desires expressed in the fear of his name with trembling before him. And he hears those desires and he fulfills those desires. He will fulfill the desire of those who fear him. He will then hear their cry, and he will save them. This is what he does for them after he has fulfilled their desire. He saves them. 
And that word save covers all kinds of different situations. Salvation from trouble, salvation from enemies, salvation from sin, salvation from death. All the different aspects of the trouble of life that's covered by that word save. He hears their cries and he saves them. And not only does he save save them, but he also preserves them until at last they attain the perfection of of the glory of his kingdom. The Lord preserves all who love him. And one more thing. Within that kingdom, he establishes righteousness by destroying the wicked. All the wicked he will destroy. They are wiped out. They perish forever. They have no part or place in the kingdom. They participate in some of the good things that belong to that kingdom during this life. But ultimately, he destroys them forever. So you have this whole picture then of the goodness, especially of the goodness of the Lord to the citizens and the creatures of his kingdom and the celebration of the revelation of the splendor of the glory of his majesty in that goodness of the Lord to his kingdom. Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised. His greatness is unsearchable. Then we turn finally to the last uh, two parts of the psalm, verses 1 and 2 and 21, which is this expression, first of all, of very personal praise. Now, a number of things about that. First of all, of course, you have the I there very strongly and not the they in verses 1 and 2. I will extol you. I will bless you. I will bless you. I will praise you. And again in verse 21, my mouth shall speak the praise of the Lord. It's not until the last line that he goes back to the they again. All flesh shall bless his holy name forever and ever. So it's this I. It's a very personal praise. The second place, notice the address. My God, O King. A very unusual combination of the names of God. And yet very appropriate in this psalm, which celebrates his kingdom, of course. In the third place, notice the different words he uses for his praise. Extol or exalt in verse 1. Bless in verse 1. Bless again in verse 2. Praise in verse 2. And then if you want to go down to verse 10, one other word he uses, all your works shall praise, or better, all your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord, and your saints shall bless you. So you have all these different ways of expressing this praise. Extol, bless, praise, all those different ways. Notice also that he talks about the name of God. In these verses, I will bless your name forever and ever, and I will praise your name forever and ever. And again, in verse 21, all flesh shall bless his holy name. His name is himself. And you could substitute simply, I will bless you forever and ever in those things, in those lines. But his name is also the revelation of himself. 
And when he uses that idea of the name, he's saying we are responding to God's revelation of his name. We know his name through his works. We know his name through the kindness and goodness that he displays in his works. And we respond to that revelation with praise and blessing. Notice that it's every day, verse 2, every day I will bless you, and that it is forever and ever. Three times, verse 1, verse 2, and again in verse 21, forever and ever. Perpetual praise to the king. Because he is great. And it's there, people of God, it's there in that praise that we do what the Lord teaches us to do in the first petition when we pray, hallowed be your name. It's there that we hallow him, that we glorify him, that we exalt him, that we praise him, that we bless him, that we fear him, that we revere him, that we honor him, that we extol him, that we laud him. In all these different ways, we are hallowing the name of of our God. So, just as a brief review, we may look at it this way, people of God. First of all, in this psalm, we praise him for what he is in himself. Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised. We praise him for what he is towards all his works. The Lord is good to all, and his tender mercies are over all his works. We praise him for what he is to us. The Lord preserves all who love him. And not only do we praise him, but we desire that all creatures in all places and through all times praise him forever and ever. And all flesh shall bless his holy name forever and ever. May God bless the proclamation of his word. Let us.